we consecrate those studies, the engagement with culture unto God, which creates a soil that is fertile for the gospel. If we are called by God to be culture makers, how shall we then live? In Lesson 5 of Christ in Culture, Ike Reeder explores the approaches of two great thinkers, J. Gresham Machen and C.S. Lewis, and unpacks their thoughts on the impact that engaged Christians can have on our culture. All right, so here's where we uh, f finished up last week. Just real quick, we gave the, this is the paradigm that we looked at for uh, the way that the Bible calls us to engage culture around us. We already made the point that the cultural mandate is not abrogated by the Great Commission, that the cultural mandate and the Great Commission fit together, that, as we, that, that part of the as you are going statement in Matthew 28 is, in fact, as you are going, doing the thing that I have called you already to do, which is to bring order to the world around you and to do so by understanding and implementing my law, God says. Now, no one can keep it perfectly, but that law, one of the functions is to restrain sin in the world. It also shows us that you can't ever fully restrain sin, which is what shows us our need for a savior. But one of the other functions is that it helps bring order. That's that 10 commandments, which Jesus then encapsulates, not getting rid of. He encapsulates in the Sermon on the Mount and in the, the Beatitudes and in several places in the New Testament. So as you are going, doing that great commission, teaching, baptizing, and discipling, right? Evangelizing, telling people about Christ. As you are going, you are bringing order. You are engaged in culture. You are both a created being and creating, uh, both bringing order by ordering and by creating, okay? As you're doing that, what does it look like? Well, we can't do anything that we will do with the, with the obvious intent of creating to worship. And we said that that is, that, that root word of cult, of a cult is the word, the culture is the word cult, which is order, okay? So what a cult leader does is they create a culture that revolves around their own worship. That's what a cult leader does. They create order, which draws around their own worship, the worship of themselves instead of the worship of the creator. And the most obvious corollary of the second commandment is Romans 1. So we see that. But however, God doesn't say you can't create in Exodus 31. He says very clearly, I have given these skills to people. You should have them. So if we don't create an order for people to worship something other than God, either the created thing or the creator, the, the, the self as creator, then our creating must become an act of worship. That doesn't mean that all of it has to be done in a church or that art exhibits need to happen in a church. But it does mean that as the creator is creating, whether it's an artistic thing or whether it's creating order, they do it with the intent of bringing worship to God. That means that it's a witness. It's a testimony. That's part of your life is bringing order as testimony to God, who is a God of order, who has created order, who has also created a pathway unto salvation. And so that worship of that creator God should infuse all those things. Now, does that mean that you put a little cross at the bottom of your painting? Does that mean that everyone has to have a Bible verse attached to it? No, that's not what it means. It means that your, your, your creative process becomes worship. 
In other words, it's first and foremost telling you you're responsible. Now, you're not wholly responsible for the way that other people receive that work you're doing. Somebody may take the thing that you've done that you're trying to do for worship and worship it, and that is their responsibility before God. But it also means that we guard against it while we're creating. Okay, So if you're a charismatic leader, then part of your responsibility is to be cautious about as you bring order, as you bring meaning around you. Part of your responsibility is to be cautious and say, to continue to use your position or platform to point people to Christ and not to yourself. If you're an artist, it's to be to, to make every effort to point people to Christ. And it may be through the thing you're creating. It may be through the way that you're talking about it. But it's a conscious personal commitment that your process of creation becomes an act of worship. And you can't do that. And let, I mean, but for the Christian, that shouldn't be a surprise because everything we do is supposed to be an act of worship unto God. Everything we do is supposed to be lived before his presence. Everything we do is supposed to fall into those paradigms and categories. Xbox. What? Xbox. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You, you better believe it. And that's, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, there's nothing wrong with playing games. I mean, we all play games. We play games in a variety of ways. As a matter of fact, do you know what the number one demographic of game user in America is? It is women 50 years and older. Millions. Millions of, millions of. Candy Crush, Solitaire, and Electronic Mahjong, those three together are used more times per year than any Xbox, PlayStation, or PC game. And I mean, I mean, my mom, my, I mean, listen, I'll give you, my mom sits there and plays Mahjong while dad's watching TV. You know how many ads pop up in the middle of those? You know how much time we do in the, doing that stuff? Uh, it's the little tile game where you match the tiles. And they're all, they're all I mean, they're, these are all, you know, older games that you could play physically but nobody wants to get the Mahjong tiles out that you spent, you know, $500 ordering from China. So you can put them in, into, a th- into a pattern. You want to do it what? You want to do it now. I don't, want to, I don't want to mess with putting that stuff together, you know? So, I mean, gaming itself isn't bad. It's a question of, you know, what are we playing? Why are we playing it? What, how much time are we playing it? And understanding the nature of what the, they're created to do. So, you know, I, I play first-person shooters. That's cool. I'm, I, I like playing them. I like playing Destiny. I played Mass Effect for a few hours yesterday because it's a role. Now, it's a role-playing game. You're doing all the stories and all that stuff. But it's, and we could go into that more at another time, but it's a question of understanding what are, the, what are, the, what are they creating it for? So ask, start asking those kinds of questions, all right? And, and it's not just is the thing bad. It's why was it created and what does it do to a person? And because, because what happens when we start asking that kind of question, it's not just the thing that we don't really want people doing that becomes bad. It's actually there's a whole bunch of other things over here that we do that often end up in those categories as well. Does that make see what I'm saying? So we can talk about that more later as we go, but let's move forward so we can get to the, our, our big charts and our big thinkers here too today. So, and, and, and what it does is, you know, it actually moves us to Acts 17 over here because what it does is the time that we put in to the things we do the things we engage in, the culture we're creating. What Paul says in Acts 17, 
He shows us a great example of engaging that culture, but we focused on that first word, I perceive. What you do shows what the belief systems that underlie it. Last, on, on, when, on, on Tuesday night, Angie and I were in Miami, had a great conversation. I got to uh, participate. We got to participate in a small group uh, for a church down there. And that was wonderfully. There was a, a couple there who were not believers who were at the small group. And, uh, and it is true. The, the guy who was hosting us and hosting the small group is only recently a believer. And so he is inviting non-Christians to their small group like crazy. And it's awesome to see. And so, and they feel free to talk and they talk. And one of, and he said at one point, one of the guys said at one point in time, he said, well, I mean, my actions are so, my beliefs, I mean, what goes on in my head is so different from what, what I do. And, you know, and I wanted to jump in. I didn't because I don't know him and we were just talking and, and, you know, it was a great, let them engage in that environment. But the fact is, is that you may be able to keep your thoughts separate from your actions for a period of time, but they will never be separate for all of time. What you fill your head with and your thought process will eventually work its way out into what you say and what you do. And there's no better book to see that than the book of James. I mean, James makes it really, really clear that the, uh, the connection between our thought and what we do. And that's what Paul says. He says, what you believe is becoming, is very clear in your society, but based on what you do. Okay. So we remember that both as a principle for our engagement with the culture around us, a close examination of a society and a culture will reveal underlying belief systems. Number one, but number two, and probably more importantly, someone else's close examination of your life and the cultures you build, the microcultures, will also reveal what your belief system is and what you value and prioritize and what you put in the pecking order of your life and your family. Okay? So that's all we'll say on that. We won't give examples because I don't want anybody to feel convicted today. No, I'm just kidding. The, uh, and then in Colossians 2, which is where we spent the most of the bulk of time yesterday, and we are not going to go through it all again, it is this Colossians shows how do we do this? We only can engage culture successfully, no matter which one of these paradigms you're going to fall into that we're going to talk about. You can only engage it successfully. You can only engage it um, consistently. I'm sure there's multiple S words or C words I could find for this, but I'm not as good as dad. Uh, successfully, consistently, and with effect. You can only do it rooted in Christ. You can't do it rooted in philosophy. You can't do it rooted in a, even a great Christian philosopher or thinker. You can't do it rooted in C.S. Lewis. You can't do it rooted in Francis Schaeffer. You can't do it rooted in Tim Keller, and you can't do it rooted in J. Gresham Machen. You can't. You can only do it rooted in Christ. And Paul says that's the guard against the empty philosophies, the sophistry of the world. Because people will come and try to get you twisted up logically. They want to get. Now, that's not to say you don't need to be prepared to have answers and you don't need to be prepared to engage in discussion and rational uh, understanding and reasoning about why you're doing what you're doing. That's not to say that you don't, you just come back and go, well, Jesus. I don't know what WWJD. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the amount of time that we spend engaged in the reading and the examination of the philosophers and the thinkers and the culture makers of today better be uh, uh, our, our, the, and the engagement of that 
it better be that our time in God's word and in Christ is equal to or greater than, or else you're feeding a separate root. Does that make sense? Those writers and thinkers will help reveal, they'll help shape, they'll help you understand the way that you're thinking or where you fall, where your belief system is and the categories that you build out for how you engage in creating cultures, whether it's your families or whether it's your churches or whether it's a school or whether it's a community or whether it's the world or whether it's the American political system or whatever it is. They're going to help you do that stuff. That's not saying you don't read them. But the amount of time that you spend in them better be equal to, the amount of time that you spend in Scripture better be equal to or more than what you're spending with those, or you're feeding a separate root. That's what it means to be rooted in Christ. That's what Dad's going so deep into this in 2 Peter and saying, understanding our position in Christ and the commands in Christ. Understanding those will shape us much more about how we engage the culture around us than any great thinker that we've had in the Christian faith, much less the ones that are outside the Christian faith that we want to deal with as well. So we stay rooted in Christ. And I've lost connection. So please try casting again. We will. Sorry about that. All right. So what does that look like? It looks like loading screen is what it looks like. J. Gresham Machen is the first one that we're going to do. Okay. Um, Connecting to living room. Did it work? No. Well, I'm not familiar with him, but often, so don't, don't assume we all know. Yes. Your Absolutely. Good point. All right. So while I'm waiting for this to connect, and apparently it is the Chrome that's having trouble to connect, um, let me real quick do this. Uh, and, and, and Ed's really good at. Um, Cutting out dead time. Technology. Don't you love getting? Uh, it is on staff Wi-Fi, and it's. Um, well, there. Now, I'm right behind you. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> while that's while that's connecting, let me say this about the, the about the thinker. So Jay Gresham Machen, for those of you who don't know him, is what we would sort of call the father of modern Presbyterianism, modern Orthodox conservative Presbyterianism. Okay. Um, well, there and there's Jay Gresham Mason. Uh, he he did play for the Steelers. I think we all know what a wonderful cornerback he was. A receiver. I shows you how much I know about football. Uh, let's get back to slides. All right. Uh, we're going to get these four different views here. Jay Gresham Machen was, a, uh, was, a, was a, a wonderful thinker and theologian, and he was at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1910s and 20s, and he was an Orthodox Presbyterian who very much um, was frustrated with the uh, neo-Orthodoxy and higher criticism and what we would call progressive theology that was surrounding him at Princeton. And for most people that know that Princeton actually doesn't even hold, I mean, Princeton Theological Seminary as a seminary today doesn't even hold that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. We're not even talking about like whether the Bible's an Aaron or not or all that stuff. It just holds that there are many multiple pathways to God and Christ is a Western expression of that. And so, um, so that needless to say, he was well ahead of the curve in recognizing where things were going. Um, and as such, he was constantly engaged in debates and, and discussions and writing and arguments there at, uh, at Princeton until finally he decided that, 
the, the arguments internally, he wasn't able to reach enough students and there was a problem. So he and uh, several others, and I will get the date wrong, but I believe it was 1932 or 37 or somewhere around in there. He and seven other professors left and formed Westminster Theological Seminary. Those of you that are familiar with Westminster will know that Dr. Barker and Pastor Reader and Dr. Reader have both been on the board. We've had a Briarwood pastor on the board of Westminster Theological Seminary since 1984, I believe, somewhere around in there. So um, they, we've had significant involvement in Westminster Theological Seminary and Westminster, they found it as the new Princeton. And Westminster is closely associated with the PCA and the OPC, those two denominations. And Machen was the one who went out and founded that. Okay, so that's a little background on J. Gresham Machen. You guys know who C.S. Lewis is, and uh, and um, and then we've got um, Richard Niebuhr and his brother Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, both would would be a little bit more on the moderate or progressive side of faith, um, but uh, but still foundationally believers. And Richard Niebuhr, what an incredible book, Christ and Culture, which has become amazingly influential over the last 50 years. It was written in uh, 1951 was when it was actually written. And then obviously you guys are familiar with Tim Keller. So uh, those are the four we're gonna be looking at here real quick. Basically what we've got is, is Machen writes in, a, in an essay called Christ and Culture. We're gonna read a quote from it in just a second. But his point was, you remember C.S. Lewis's phrase that when he read George MacDonald, his, he, before he was a believer, that his imagination was baptized because MacDonald was a Christian author. And he said, basically what he was saying, he was reading a Christian fantasist who, or, you know, a writer, someone who wrote fantasy, who was, the writing was so beautiful. And the picture of what was portrayed behind the fantasy, which was a redemptive story that had elements, it was both darkness, but also light coming through. What he realized is that reading MacDonald sort of, and he does not use the term baptized the way that we would be using it in the, in the sort of standard sense of you made a commitment to Christ and now you get dunked or you get water sprinkled or whatever. He would mean it in almost more an infant baptism sense. Like before he made a decision to Christ, there was this engagement that sort of kick-started the Holy Spirit's work, if you will. Okay, And that doesn't mean the action does that. The Holy Spirit does that. But that sort of brought him into this sort of way of thinking. And that's what McDonald did. It made his imagination come alive in a way that he felt like it had never really happened before, even in his love of myth and everything else. So what Machen's arguing here, this consecration is basically that culture can have this sort of baptizing effect, that if we don't engage culture, then we're giving up an entire battleground that can, that can be avenues of the Holy Spirit to work pre-conversion. That's what this idea is talking about, pre-conversion. And so if you, um, if you will, it's a long quote, but let me read it for you. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's have somebody read it for us. So uh, if someone else reads it, then they're more likely to, you're more likely to remember it. So this is the quote of, of Machen. He's basically saying, you got on the one hand, he's talking to seminarians. This was written in a journal that was written for seminary students. He was talking to pastors, really. His part is really was his primary audience and a longer audience intended. And basically what he says is, look, you either give up on it, and sure, you're going to have some residual people filter into your church that prompted by the Holy Spirit may end up there and may see and, and, and grow and learn and make a commitment to Christ. But if you do, you've given up on this 
whole group of people that are lost and we're called to engage. And what we want is a fertile ground for the reception of the gospel. You, and, and the way that you can get that fertile ground is to do what? Engage the culture with the gospel. Engage the mechanisms of that culture with the gospel. That's what he's arguing for here. So somebody who can read it and doesn't have a glare on it, read this quote from Machen out loud for us. Go for it, Joel. Instead of destroying the arts and sciences or being indifferent to them, let us cultivate them with all the enthusiasm of the various humanists, but at the same time, consecrate them to the service of our God. Instead of stifling the pleasures afforded by the acquisition of knowledge or by the appreciation of what is beautiful, let us accept these pleasures as the gifts of a Heavenly Father. Instead of obliterating the distinction between the kingdom and the world or withdrawing from the world, let us go forth joyfully, enthusiastically to make the world subject to God. Okay, so it's this idea consecrating the world around us to God. Because if you're consecrating it to God, if you're engaging it enthusiastically, if you are, you know, it, the humanist. I mean, why does he? Why does he say the veriest humanist? Now, very using that word there means it's in the classical sense, which means what? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, truthfully, truthfully. Veriest is the old. Elizabethan term for true, right? That's why you say, I am very upset. I mean, do you ever say that to a kid that what you're saying is, I am truly upset. I am not dishonestly upset, right? This is not a play, all right? <laughs> this is seriously upset is what I am right now. So the veriest humanist is he's saying the truest humanist and a humanist is someone who believes in one major principle, the Latin phrase being homo mensura, which means man the measure, the me that the measure of all things is man, is humanity, is what does it mean to be human and the way that we engage those things and everything else. The truest humanist, therefore, will engage the arts and the sciences most passionately because it is the very expression and exploration of their existence. If, you're, if you believe that man is the ultimate arbiter of truth, reality in the world, then the sciences is where you explore that. The arts are where you create the measure of that, the expressions of it. So the, the truest human will engage these passionately and without stop. So what Machen says is, like the various humanists, let us cultivate them with all the enthusiasm, but not for the consecration of self, but for the consecration, for, for not even the consecration, for their consecration unto God, that we bring them as gifts. And I love it. And I, I use this in the Tuesday night thing when we were talking. I don't know why it's come to my mind twice in one week, but it's the, 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 the one of the great examples of that that I love is the, is the chariots of fire scene, right? When, when she says, you know, aren't you supposed to be a missionary, right? You're supposed to be a missionary. That's, that's evangelism. You're taking people to God. And he says, yes, I am going to be a missionary. But God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And this is where, I mean, this is the part that, for those of you that have read books like Desiring God, this is the part that Piper's latching onto right here. Lewis and, and Machen, this is the kind of idea. To latch into that, the pleasures, God gives us those pleasures of being involved in those cultures. That's what he, instead of obliterating, the, or instead, uh, 
um, instead of stifling the pleasures afforded by the acquisition of knowledge or by the appreciation of what is beautiful, accept those, but they are gifts from God. But they're only gifts from God in such as they point us back to God. As they point us away from God, then it's not that the pleasure is necessarily wrong in and of itself. It's that we are using it for the wrong reason. We aren't consecrating it unto him. So, so, so Machen starts off, this is 1913, okay? So that's why I wanted to, we're kind of going chronologically here, right? So Machen gives us this idea. We consecrate those studies, the engagement with culture unto God, which creates a soil that is fertile for the gospel of, of Christ to be preached and spoken and witnessed and seen. So let's take that, because we're running out of time, let's take that a step forward now to C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, the phrase that was at the top was the suburbs of Jerusalem. And remember, you've got all these quotes, Mary Claire sent these out to everybody. So uh, that, uh, that, and so if you, if you haven't gotten it yet, Mary Claire's got the link to all the slides, so you can get these, okay? So these are long, but this is now what Lewis does is he talks about what, what happens with Christians. A lot of times what we want to do is we want to imitate culture instead of actually making culture. In other words, we kind of go into our own little room and we want to make our version of culture that's around there, which is in fact possible. You can do it. You can make that culture. But instead of imitating the culture around us, let's engage the culture around us. And, and Lewis uses the, the, the metaphor of the city of Jerusalem as being the holy city, the sort of the center of Christianity, if you will. All right. And what he says is that the engagement with Jerusalem we should not neglect the suburbs of Jerusalem. They may not be inside Jerusalem. And just as, because what's, what's the argument against our engagement with culture? A lot of times, as, for those of us that are in here that are parents, a lot of times you're like, I don't want my kid involved in that stuff because what happens? It, it influences them and it leads them what? Away from, from Christianity. Well, Lewis says, well, yes, that's true. But they're also the, sa the same road that can lead you away is the same road that can lead you back. There are no one-way streets, is what Lewis is trying to tell us in this quote, okay? So who wants to give this one a shot? It's a little longer. He says, any road out of Jerusalem must also be a road into Jerusalem. Culture is the storehouse of the best sub-Christian values. These values are in themselves of the soul, not the spirit. But God created the soul. His values may be expected, therefore, to contain some reflection of spiritual values. They will save no man. They resemble the re regenerative, regenerate, regenerate. It's small. The regenerate life. Regenerate life of its affection resembles virtue, or the moon, the sun. But though like is not the same, it is better than unlike. Yeah, you want me? Yeah, the like is not the same. They says, but so let me stop you there, there for a second, Mac. So what he's saying right there, right, do you follow his argument? What he's saying there, what he's saying is, look, the the he's making a distinction between the spirit and the soul. Now that's not a formal distinction; it's just a distinction he's using for the essay that he's writing in. And helpfully, this one's also called Christianity and Culture. So all these essays are actually called Christianity and Culture or Christ and Culture. So you can find them really easily. But what he's doing here is he's gone through and he's talked about, has there been great Christian values in literature historically? And for anybody that can answer that question, it's C.S. Lewis. 
because he is unbelievably well-versed in the history of values in Christianity, okay? Hold on one second. Let me, go through, let me just go through this quick explanation first. And so he says, culture is the storehouse of the best sub-Christian value. In other words, what he's saying, not that, that sub there doesn't mean like not, not Christian or not whatever. It means those are, there are Christian values that are distinctly medievalists would articulate these six Christian values of honor and respect and a couple of other ones like that. And he says, there's a bunch of and love. And he says, there's a bunch of other values that are out there um, that are positive. They're not necessarily the ones that are listed as the traditional Christian values, but it doesn't make them not Christian or not valuable. Okay. And so he says, they're, they're sub-Christian, but they're not anti-Christian. They're not opposed to Christianity. And in fact, in many places, it is in the non-Christian, outside of Christian uh, expressions of art that we find those. And he says, now these values are, are, in themselves, are, are in themselves of the soul, but not the spirit. The spirit, he means, is the spirit that you get when the Holy Spirit comes into you. The soul is what is regenerated when the Holy Spirit comes to you. Does that make sense? Okay. Now remember, Lewis isn't a theologian. He's a philosopher. So he's using a little bit different terms. All right. And so he says, these are of the soul. They are values that every person as being created in God's image should want to express, but not in and of themselves strictly Christian, which are the expressions of values that you receive when your life is transformed in Christ by the spirit. But God, but you know, that soul, that thing, God created it. So those are not in, they're not wrong values. And those values may be expected and they will contain because they are part of God's creation. They'll contain elements of Christian values. Now understand the distinction. It's a distinction with a difference. The distinction is that those values won't save you. That art won't take you to Jesus. That art may just be things that resemble the life that is regenerated by the spirit without necessarily, um, or as the, uh, uh, that only as affection resembles virtue or as the moon resembles the sun. But though like is not the same, though it is a distinction, it is also much better than being unlike. It is, in other words, it is really good to have positive values that are communicated to us through our arts and through our culture than it is to have negative or than it is to have values that are anti-Christian, even if they are sub-Christian. All right. That's what he means by it being a suburb as opposed to a separate, a far off city, if you will, to extend his analogy out. So he says imitation though, but here's one thing that we want to remember as believers, as we're trying to take the gospel out. Imitation may pass into initiation. Imitation may become a thing that moves people to want to know, I don't want to imitate this anymore. I want to be this. I don't want to just have an expression. I want to be, to have the one who gives the ability to express. So the engagement in those suburbs is building the roads. Instead of letting the suburbs be roads that take people out, build the suburbs so they're roads that bring people in, is what Lewis is challenging people to do. For others, it is not. Culture is not everyone's. For some, it is a good beginning. For others, it is not. Culture is not everyone's road, but he's, but he's also very honest about it. 
Culture is not everyone's road into Jerusalem. And for some, it is a road out. But on these grounds, I conclude that culture has a distinct part to play in bringing certain souls to Christ. Not all souls. There is a shorter and safer way, and safer way, which has always been followed by thousands of simple, affectional natures who begin where we hope to end with the devotion to the person of Christ. So he's saying this is not this is not necessarily the way that everybody comes into culture around us or comes into comes to Christ around us. But it is the way that many do. And if you give up on engaging that culture and building those values that are contained under Christianity, then you then you're letting Satan, if I can speak more in spiritual warfare terms than Lewis does here, although Lewis does in other places, most notably you'll see this echoed significantly in letters in the screw in the screw tape letters. You will see this concept about it as spiritual warfare. Now he's this was for an academic journal and he's dealing with this as a Christian academic here. In the screw tape letters you see it much more engaged in for 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 practical spiritual warfare terms. But what Lewis is saying is that there, there, is, there, there is always warfare. There is no warfare inside the city of Jerusalem. That is, Christ reigns supreme, right? It is the city unto salvation. And he's using this term that Jerusalem is using metaphorically here, okay? It's sort of a William Blake idea of Jerusalem, if you know the Blake poem about Jerusalem. Um, the, uh, what he's talking about, but where the warfare is, is in the suburbs, and Satan is hectically and maniacally wanting to build suburbs that lead people out of that city. Now, we can't lose your salvation. Again, it's a metaphor term, all right, for what, we're, what Lewis is talking about here. But what Satan is, he, wants, he wants to build those suburbs in such a way that those roads do become one-way streets out and away from Christ. What Lewis is saying is we got to build those suburbs so that they become roads in to Jerusalem and not away. So Machen gives us the importance of, 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 of engaging culture to build fertile soil, consecrating it for Christ instead of letting the culture tell you what to worship with those expressions of art and order. Lewis is telling you that those, that, that engagement can become a road into Jerusalem to Christ and then Niebuhr is going to give us the five, the, the, these other different ways, five different views that we're then going to have to go, where do I fall? And Lewis and, and, and uh, Machen have already attacked two of them. All right. So two will get knocked off the list as we go. So what you have to talk, walk away from here, and then this is we're, we're done for today. What you need to walk away with here is, is this question. If we do, number one, do I believe in what Machen and Lewis are arguing? Do I, do, do I buy their arguments? You have to first engage that topic, okay? Is it important for me to engage culture in this capacity? Can I, can I do this the way that the humanist does, but do it for Christ? Can I, can I accept the pleasure that comes as coming from God, but consecrate it unto the Lord? Do I want to be in the fight for the suburbs of Jerusalem. Is that an area? Do I want to engage in that battle? Again, going back to what we talked about, it's not easy. 
It's a hard battle that you fight because you're waging war against Satan. That's, that's the reality of this issue of culture. We're all participating in culture building and making, even by abstaining or denying. Okay? If so, did the paradigm that we looked at yesterday uh, with the rooted in Christ and the, the, the Exodus and the Acts and Colossians paradigm, how does that then give us guidance for how we're going to do this? Is it one way? Is it multiple ways? How do we engage it? Does it mean we can go see whatever movie we want to see? Does it mean that we see something so we can tell other people why it's right or wrong? Does it mean that we behave a certain way in our office, and our employment workplace? And what about our marriages and our families? How does this impact the way that we, how, do we, how does our, the culture of our family become a road into Jerusalem instead of a road out of Jerusalem? How do we build that culture? So what do we do? That's what we're continuing to push through to, towards. And uh, we'll pick up with that next week.